Alhamdulillahi wahda wa salatu wa salamu ala man la nabiya ba'dih amma ba'd I had a few things that I, I wanted to address and Brother Suhail covered them pretty much already uh, So what I'll do in, in, instead inshallah ta'ala is try and I pick up on a few of the really fantastic points he mentioned and try and expand upon them a little bit bismillahi ta'ala and bear with me as we go because what I had prepared of now has been covered I think actually better than the way I was going to do it so inshallah ta'ala we can we can continue to build upon this um, the brother mentioned the necessity of there being a real and a real bond between one's parents and their children and the children and the parents and that relationship is two-way in many, many occasions, I know those from the South, uh, the South Asian background, they view relationships to be from the top to the bottom. That the parents are those in authority and the children are the ones that obey authority. However, in this country, it's not the way uh, the society is built. And that sort of exasperates the situation that many Asians feel that they, they're experiencing with their children, is they were brought up as the first generation born in this country, still experiencing within their households and their direct communities that their parents and their elders were people who deserved honor and respect and they had authority and it was left unquestioned. But then their children, of course, my generation, we were born uh, in a situation and our children even more so now, second, third generation, are in a situation where relationships are supposed to be two-way. A child goes to school and they learn from their teacher about mutual respect. That yes, the teacher is in a position of authority, but he is not above authority. The teacher is, a is in a position of authority, but he's not above authority, meaning the teacher can still make mistakes and he can be questioned about things. It can be during the course of a class, a teacher mentions something and has a slip of the tongue and makes a mistake. One of the students would say, sir, isn't it supposed to be like that? And the teacher would actually recommend that and say, well done, thanks for picking that up. Good stuff. So the relationships that children experience outside of the home is very different to the type of relationship perhaps we would have had in our homes and definitely our parents would have had in their homes. The majority of the impact that is formulating the character of a child initially is of course in the home environment. But once the child leaves the home and goes to school, the external environment begins to have a greater effect on the development of the child than the home environment. Unless, as the brother was saying, the relationship between the parents from the outset is two-way. It's not just a case of top to bottom, the parents explaining to the children, this is what I want you to do, these are the rules of the house, this is what you must do, and there are recompense and problems if you don't obey me. Rather, there needs to be negotiated rules, there needs to be discussion between people. Children need to recognize and feel they are loved and they are important, they're special, that they have capabilities, they're not just small people, but they are people within their own rights that may be small of stature, but not small in status or small in capability, as we heard from Sheikh Sajid yesterday. Now, we turn to Ali ibn Abi Talib radiallahu ta'ala He mentioned something really interesting. He said that up until the age of seven, admonish your children. Don't necessarily have to give them too many reasons for things but make sure you admonish them. Make sure you give them very, very strict guidelines about how to be and what to do and what not to do. After that, he said, until they're 14, be their companion, explain to them, spend time with them. Now, something from within neuroscience is understood that before the age of seven, the child's brain is regarded to be almost primate in nature, meaning it doesn't have the, the, the capacity for higher cognitive reasoning. The brain is un, unable to to understand extensive reasoning. 
extended logic. It doesn't have the capability. Once a child hits the age of seven, the brain begins to develop, and then the higher faculties begin to, to come into play. So you can see that Ali ibn Abi Talib, he understood something here. And his inspiration was from the Prophet when he said, command your children to pray at the age of seven. We'll stop the hadith there. The Rasul said, command your children to pray at the age of seven. Why was it not at the age of five? There was an understanding that the child before the age of seven doesn't really have the capacity to understand obligation. It doesn't really have the capacity to understand selflessness. It doesn't really have that capacity. So, but what happens before the age of seven is role modeling, tarbiyah. They're experiencing a set of, 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 of principles. They're experiencing a way of being. They're experiencing a set of behaviors from their parents day in, day out. And these things are implicitly incorporated into their lives. Now, there are two ways of learning things. Some, there's something which is called implicit learning and something which is explicit learning. Now, those of you that are teachers, you'll understand this differentiation. Those of you that aren't, I'll, I'll spend just a minute or so explaining. Something which is learned implicitly is something which is learned through interaction with society on a general day-to-day -day basis without ever being specifically mentioned by anyone at any particular time. For example, the accents you speak with. If you're just from a particular part of the country, you just happen to speak in a particular part of the way. It's, it was never really the case that someone said, oh, you should say this word like that or not like this. Unless you took a word from the Americans or from some other part of the country and your parents said, hey, it's an H, not a H, what are you doing? Right? But implicit education is something which just happens over time. It's inculcated into a person almost subconsciously. Explicit learning is what we do in formal education. This is how you do linear equations. This is how you calculate a graph. This is photosynthesis. Things are spoken by, by name, and explained in detail, mentioning clearly this is what this is, this is how this works. Younger children learn implicitly. They're experiencing, they're learning language, they're learning behavior. They're taking things in, absorbing constantly from the environment within the home. Once they reach the age of seven, their minds open a lot more. And this is when now they're able to take on board all of the things which they've been understanding and incorporating over those years and now start to construct things themselves. Which is why many, many parents, and it happened to me as, as well with my eldest son, that when he turned to the age of six, seven, eight, uh, he began to change all of his opinions about things. Started to develop a lot of opinions. He's like, okay, okay, Yunus, <laughs> mashallah, this is something unprecedented. He started creating his own idea about things. Now, this is the time when the parents should pay, pay close attention not to stifle their child, but rather listen. You know, as, as the, the brother was saying, that the bond needs to be there. If the child comes up with something which is wrong, they shouldn't be stamped out and put in their place. They should be listened to, and then they should be uh, spoken to, and uh, their mistake should be explained. Now, the same way the, uh, the Sahaba, عنهم, when they spoke about the Prophet the, we know the hadith of the Arabi that went to the masjid and urinated in the masjids. Hands up if you heard this hadith. Okay, this is famous. Now, those of you that haven't, I'll just go over the, the part in, uh, of, of use. The Rasul was having a gathering in the masjid. A Bedouin came and joined and sat. During the course of the gathering, he got up and went to the, uh, and went to the side of the masjid and began to urinate. Now, the companions that were there, they were what's called Madani. They were people that were used to living in, in, a, in a city. 
in a town. They were cultured people. The Arabi, a Bedouin, is someone who's used to being away from people, living out, outside of normal society. The general interactions with animals. The general way of speaking is, Oi! Sit! Uh, being very gruff and being, being very rough. And we, we know that. You know, Allah Ta'ala says, That the, the Bedouins are fiercer and greater in disbelief and hypocrisy. And they are most likely not to ha- not to be not to understand and not have knowledge of the of the boundaries Allah has revealed upon His Messenger. This is the nature of a Bedouin. They, they live outside of the usual uh, experiences of human society. Their life is just about the earth and about animals. So when it comes to dealing with humans, one of them once grabbed hold of the Prophet وسلم, and pulled his gown, so it left a red mark across his neck, and he said, "Oh Muhammad." He didn't even say "Ya Rasulullah." He just "Oh Muhammad" and grabbed him. And Umar radiAllahu ta'ala anhu was. <laughs> He said, Ya Rasulullah, give me permission. And I said, chop his neck. And he said, no, leave him. He's Arabi, he's a Bedouin. This is the way he deals with people. You know, he's used to just grabbing hold of animals. He's not having to, to think about the nuances of tact. Just take hold of what you want and deal with it. So, step back. This Arabi, this Bedouin, was in the masjid. His life is if he needs to, to urinate, he goes and urinates. There's, you know, there's no one around. He does what he wants to do where he wants to do it. And he moves on. He's a nomad. So he's not used to the concept of there being a particular time in a particular place that you know you go and you do these things and you do things uh, uh, in a cultured manner. So he's in the masjid, feels a need to do what he needs to do, and he goes to the side. In his world, going to the side was good enough. He wasn't doing it there in the middle, where it's going to cause a problem for those particular people. So the companions stood up and they said, Ya Rasulullah, you know, allow us to do with him. The Rasul said, No, leave him. Don't make him stop. You could, you could cause him some, some issue. If a person holds onto the urination, it could cause some internal damage, but it could also lead to the clothes becoming defiled as well. So he said, let him finish and then just pour some water over it. So then after this happened, the Bedouin mentions afterwards and said, I never met a better teacher than the Prophet The Prophet said to him, this is the masjid, it's the house of Allah. It has been created for salah and for glorification of Allah, it has not been made for that. Finished. No reprimand, just an explanation. The masjid is used for salah and for the glorification of Allah, we, we just don't do that here. Fine, lesson was learned, there was no need for a reprimand. He understood where the person was coming from and gave him the lesson he needed. That was it. So he said he was the best teacher I've ever met. So this is the example that we need to, under, we need to incorporate within ourselves. Understand where our children are coming from when they say something. Understand where the children are coming from when they do something and deal with it in appropriate manner If we deal with that in appropriate manner, we will be bringing them closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and bringing them closer to ourselves There's an example that comes to mind um, A daughter said to her mother Who created Allah? And the mother said, A'udhu billah, say astaghfirullah Standard response, you know, this is the equivalent of a backhander, right? Astaghfirullah. The Prophet said, if the shaitan says this to you, then say, Okay, fine. But has that solved the issue? No. So what should a person have done? Understand that, wait a minute, there's obviously a doubt that's crept into the mind of the daughter here. Something has happened to her. She was thinking, wasn't she? First and foremost, it was a good thought, thinking about Allah Ta'ala's creation. Allah Ta'ala's created everything. She said to her mother, you know, the, the, the story was, was, was mentioned to me, that you know, Allah Ta'ala's created everything, so then who created Allah? 
So it needed to be explained. Allah is outside of creation. Allah is not part of this material universe. He existed before the universe. And then think about what Allah Ta'ala says, that if there were more gods, then the earth, the heavens and the earth would have become corrupted. In another ayah, Allah Ta'ala says that every, every god would have gone with its create, well, that which it had created, and there would be difference everywhere. So what does it mean to be a god? The first and foremost thing about a god, a deity, is that it's perfect. So this is the thing to explain to the child when something like this happens. Allah Ta'ala is perfect, and part of being perfect is the ability to create. And everything that's being created is being maintained by the same entity that created it. If there was more than one God, there would be more than one creator. And every creator would be free to have his own rules about how it creates and the way it maintains its creation. So you would see like different laws of physics in different parts of the earth. You would see different laws and regulations applying to different places within the universe. But we don't see that. Everything is the same. It doesn't matter whether it's here or on Saturn. It's everywhere is the same. So we understand there's one creator. And we understand because Allah Ta'ala told us that the Creator is not part of creation. In the same way when you put a cake in the oven, you're not part of your cake. You're separate from it. So if the mother would have taken a step back from this initial ah, backhand response, you know, and actually think, well, what was going on in the child's mind? First and foremost, there was something praiseworthy happening. The child was giving thoughts about Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta'ala. But then shaitan came. So now we have to make sure that the, the doubts and the misunderstandings that were inside the heart of the child are dealt with, so that when the child thinks about something again, they're, they're capable to push the, the, these things away. Now, the Rasul mentioned that deviants can be of two types. And this is again taken from Al-Fatiha. There's the غَيْلِ مَضْلُوبِ عَلَيْهِمْ and there's the ضَالِّين. That there are those people that have no knowledge and there are those people that have no knowledge and, and, act, and don't act accordingly. So there are people who act on passion and there are people who have doubts. You can follow your desires, or you can have doubts, desires and doubts. Many of the talks focus on dealing with the desires and, and problems of addiction and, and things like that. But we don't spend much time thinking about the types of doubts that can occur within, within the children. They go to school and they experience people of different ethnic backgrounds, different religions, different ideologies, especially now what's happening within the schools to do with sex education, LGBT and these different things. It's become even more important for us now to engage with our children on the level that they are within their schools. Talk about the things they experience, what's happening in their daily life. You know, Allah Ta'ala knows what sort of nonsense they're exposed to if they watch television and things like that. So it's important we engage with them to find out what it is that they're exposed to, what sort of things are influencing them. And it doesn't have to be done explicitly. Hey, you know, what did you watch on TV? Can you tell me about it? You know, what did you think about this, that or the other? It can be done in a sort of roundabout sort of way. Bring topics up, discuss things with your children, see where the way they think, try and understand what their emotions are, try and understand the way they're experiencing things within themselves and enable them to grow by, by guiding them in the right direction. Up until the age of seven, of course we try and explain to our children as much as we can why we do things, but their capacity to understand is limited. Once they get to the age of seven, we can increase in, in the sort of knowledge we impart upon them and we can engage them in, in, in deeper discussions. Then Ali ibn Abi Talib mentioned by the age of 14, he said, then become their friend. So you have the time of admonition and instruction. You then have the time of companionship and you have the time of friendship. So this is the point now. Once they get to a certain age, we're supposed to be friends with our children. We have to move past this thing of I'm the father, this is my son, or I'm the elder and this is the youngster. Once a person's mind has become mature, and they're technically an adult, 
we have to recognize that person is an adult. That person could get married, that person could have children, that person can, can do all sorts of different things Islamically, legally. So we should recognize them as a sort of a friend. Now, I know for, uh, for some elders, that may be something a bit strange to think about, but, but once a person is a grandfather, I'm quite sure they can understand what I'm saying, that now when they look upon their son or their daughter and they are now a grandfather or a grandmother, that relationship is very different from when the person was, their, their child was 15 years old or 17 years old. But it shouldn't need to have waited 30 years. There shouldn't need to have been that wait until they become a grandparent to then look back on their own child and be like, oh, you know, we have so much in common, we can like peer discussion and talk about things. Now we have similar emotions. Those things can happen a lot earlier. So the relationship between the parents and the children needs to be two-way. It's not just top-bottom, it also needs to be that the, 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 the parents interface with the children and understand who their children are. And we need to, inshallah ta'ala, engage with our children, engage them in benefiting themselves and moving towards a better understanding of Islam from where they already are. One of the, the issues we have, or I personally have, with the, the educational systems, Islamic systems that are in place in Madaris and Islamic schools, is they start at a, at a place that doesn't necessarily fit with where the children are. We want to start teaching children something, we start from here because that's just where the textbook is. But is that textbook appropriate to the child? Sometimes it's too high, sometimes it's just completely irrelevant, sometimes it's too low. But what we need to do is make sure that children are being interfaced with according to their level according to their background and according to their understanding. And the people who are best suited to do that are their own parents. As the brother was saying, education uh, can be outsourced, but tarbiyah, this nurturing of the child, enabling a transformation, uh, that's pretty much done at home. Yes, it's true that a person can have a sheikh and, and take an amazing benefit from them. One of my sheikhs in Egypt, Sheikh Ahmed Tahrayan, I spent four years studying with him pretty much every week. And the majority of what I took from him was character. Now, I wouldn't go to him specifically to their knowledge. You know, there were people that I could perhaps study more with in other places. I just loved the manners of the sheikh. He was an old man, extremely experienced in life. And I would just sit there with bent knees and just enjoy. That, you know, this is a person who's got experience in life and everything about him was special. And this is what Ibn Qasim, one of the students of Imam Malik said. He said, I studied with Imam Malik for 20 years. I learned character from him for eight, 18 years and knowledge for two years. If only I'd have spent the full 20 years learning character and etiquette from him. So it's possible that a person can get that nourishment, that tarbiyah from outside the house, but it's not normal. It takes something special from the child to seek it out. And that's not something that we as parents can be, just think it will happen. Oh, you know, that goes to my child, go to madrasa or something, it will happen. It won't necessarily. So we need to start at home, inshallah ta'ala. Starting in the house, making sure the relationship is two-way and dealing with the children from where they are, inshaAllah ta'ala. Wa akhwa da'wana, alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen.